welcome to Art of the Score, the podcast that explores, demystifies, and celebrates some of the greatest soundtracks of all time from the world of film, TV, and video games. I'm Andrew Poxon, and in each episode, we'll be joined by Daniel Golding and Nicholas Buck as we check out a soundtrack we love, break down its main themes, explore what makes the score tick, and hopefully impart our love of the world of soundtracks. In episode 29, we're responding to a huge number of requests from our listeners and we're bringing you a live recording of one of our recent talks for the Melbourne International Film Festival. The topic, the film music of Nick Cave and Warren Ellis, a talk that was accompanied later that week by a set of four sold-out shows with the Melbourne Symphony Orchestra, along with Nick and Warren themselves live on stage. For myself, it truly was a magical week of collaboration and amazing music making, and Nick Cave and Warren Ellis couldn't have been more warm and genuine in their approach to the concerts, both in their generous artistry, but also how wonderful they were to deal with behind the scenes. Truly a unicorn week of work. We'll cross now to our live recording where Thomas Caldwell from MIF, a great friend of the podcast, will make the introductions. Please enjoy. Good evening. My name is Thomas Caldwell. I'm the programmer at the Melbourne International Film Festival. And I'd like to begin by acknowledging that we're gathered on the traditional land of the Kulin Nation, and I pay my respect to their elders past and present. Welcome to Art of the Score, the film music of Nick Cave and Warren Ellis, a MIF Talks event that has been inspired by the Melbourne Symphony Orchestra's four upcoming film music of Nick Cave and Warren Ellis concert events that are happening later this week as part of MIF. This year, the MIF Talks program is presented by the University of Melbourne, Faculty of Fine Arts and Music. For information on other events, please visit mif.com.au forward slash talks. I'm now going to hand you over to Andrew to start the show. Thank you very much, Thomas. Um, I'm Andrew Pogson, and not only am I the co-host of the podcast Art of the Score, I'm also the senior manager of special projects at the Melbourne Symphony Orchestra. So there is a little bit of a, well, more than a little bit of a crossover uh, for me in terms of this talk. Now, without any further ado, I'll make some introductions to your right. Joining me on, I guess, the middle, why not? Sure. Um, he's a writer, he's a critic, university lecturer, the ABC radio host with the show Screen Sounds on ABC Classic, and he's just released his latest book called uh, Star Wars After Lucas, which I'm dubbing the greatest piece of non-fiction ever written about Star Wars by an author living within the greater Brunswick area. <laughs> Can we please make welcome Dr. Dan Golding? Thank you very much. It's a hard one title, but I'll uh, I'll take it. Yeah. No, I think uh, I think this is going to be really fun to talk about the film music of Nick Cave and Warren Ellis. It's you know their sound is so influential on well film music. I think generally, so it, it'll be great to unpick that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And on my left, left. 
He's a composer, a conductor, and he's actually the arranger, the actual arranger of the uh, and orchestrator for the Nick Cave and Warren Ellis concert later this week with the MSO. So we're sort of getting it from the, the horse's mouth, so to speak. And although he doesn't have a book of his own to sell, he has read Dan's book, and he believes that when thinking about the topic of academic literature written about sci uh, fictional <laughs> sci-fi universes and how those universes have shaped cultures more broadly, that Dan's book is, quote, adequate but cool. <laughs> Can we please make welcome Mr. <laughs> Nicholas Buck? Thank you very much, guys. Um, like Dan said, the music of Nick Cave and Warren Ellis really is quite a unique sound. And we're going to look at three films specifically today and just unpick a bit how they work, what the identifiable kind of characteristics are, how they work in the film. And really, um, you know, I'll try to impart a bit of knowledge uh, in my conversations with them, basically orchestrating their work, which isn't really that orchestral. It's quite intimate in many ways, even though a lot of their films have vast landscapes. So that, that sort of duality is quite interesting. But I'll try and yeah, get my two cents across what I've learned from them over the last few months. Mm. And I guess the hope of this, this talk ultimately is we'll try and discover what the, uh, the DNA is of a, a Nick Cave and Warren Ellis score. Um, because I think there is absolutely a style that they have that's um, sort of unmistakably theirs and has gone on to influence uh, piles of other uh, music from film in, in the genre. So, uh, mm. but without any further ado about that, uh, Dan, what can you tell us about, well, Nick Cave and Warren Ellis? Yeah, absolutely. So, well, I'm sure probably some of you are familiar with them. Uh, here we have some images in case you uh, don't know what they look like. Uh, <laughs> I think probably, probably you will. Uh, and, you know, of course, they are really, you know, part of a lineage of composers who've entered writing music for film and, well, for TV as well, uh, coming from a non-orchestral background, uh, coming from writing for, you know, well, pop, rock, alternative, uh, whatever you want to call it, not for orchestras. They're kind of bread and butter, of course, you know, Nick Cave and Bad Seeds and Birthday Party and all those, those, those great uh, bands and Warren Ellis with Dirty Three in particular. Um, you know, I think... The, the sound of Dirty Three is, is, is hugely important uh, for the sound of their, their film music. And, I mean, actually, why don't we, why don't we play a little, uh, a little track we've got from... Yeah, look, uh, that's a, a good starting point. Let's play a... Um, it's the track called Alice uh, Waiting, mm. and it's from the album She Has No Strings, Apollo, released in 2003. Mm. And really pay attention to the, the rustic kind of fiddling element because that's really forms such a huge part of their film scores. Check it out. Yeah, and I mean, you know, to reinforce the fact that that's quite a cinematic sound. I mean, this album, although it was released in 2003, actually that very track was later used in uh, the uh, Jeff Nichols film, Mud, uh, with Matthew McConaughey uh, in uh, 2012, I think it was. Uh, and, uh, I mean, Jeff Nichols, is, you know, I've also seen the Midnight Special, a great, great film, good use of music. Um, so, you know, I think... 
yeah, there's something dramatic about even Dirty Three, really, um, I think, that, that works so well uh, as soundtrack. And I think, you know, what, what I've found in their film music is that it's really playing on the strengths of them as musicians. So it's Warren's violin is a huge feature. Uh, Nick's, you know, strengths are piano and singing and vocals, whether it's uh, his poetry, his whispers, which often feature, especially in the proposition, or just his singing in, in general. It's really building on those, on those elements. And the way they write these scores has really... Talking to their engineer, um, fellow called Jake Jackson, who runs a studio and works out of a studio in London called Air Studios. Really some fascinating insights. He said they are unlike any other film composers that I've worked with. And he has worked with John Powell, you know, on the latest Star Wars film, everything to Hans Zimmer. Um, these guys have a, a different aesthetic and it's much more of a, a band collaborative aesthetic. You know, Nick will come in, lay down something. Warren will come in and jam over the top and it's this sort of back and forth, hey, what about this, what about this? And they'd often come up with like 15 minute long suites or ideas of music. So it's, it's formed in a very kind of, you know, let's form a record, let's make a band album kind of way, as mm. opposed to, you know, say someone like John Williams who'd watch the film and meticulously say, all right, uh, there's the princess kissing, so he'll make a note. And it's very structured and, and spotted, as they say in the film scoring business, having a spotting session. Mm. With Nick and Warren, it's, um, it's almost the opposite. Some of the films they've written completely without seeing picture, only reading scripts. And it basically proves that film scores can take any form. They yeah. can take any style and even the method that they're created in can vary. It's really yeah, interesting. Absolutely. It's a real um, like music conversation, isn't it? You know, between two artists. I mean, a lot of lot of artists. I think even that that idea of of two composers coming together, two musicians, and writing in that way where someone goes into the studio uh, and puts down their thing first. You, you don't know what that is, and then you come in and react to it. And then someone else, or the same person, then comes back in and reacts to that again, and you're reacting, reacting. Mm. I find that fascinating. It's mm. it's literally you. The, the end result is a a conversation that has happened back and forth over the course of however many days or however long it took. Um, so I mean. Even that is a strange collaborative process. I mean, normally composers will sort of be far more in the same room talking together, and, and I'm sure that happens to some extent, but this does feel like a, I'll lay down a thing and then you react to it. And so, in other words, a lot of improvisation going on yeah. as well and, um, um, and then finding things that spark interest and then grabbing onto that and keeping that, and yeah, it's really cool. <laughs> so, look, I think we, we're going to start by looking at their first film collaboration, which is The Proposition. Yeah. And as many of you may know, you know, Nick Cave wrote the script. Mm. So, well, at least the screenplay. Yeah, um, so he probably did see a script in this case before he wrote some music. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, you know, he, of course, would have a pretty good idea of what he, he, you know, he would want for the film. But what's really interesting is how how simple the musical material is and how effective it is working with the picture. And it's one of those times where often all it needs is a drone or a little fiddle idea, something really simple becomes the heart and soul of the film. And to me, the sound of the proposition is the sound of this bit of music, which I'm going to play you right now, and just feel the, the texture that is, it's just like one kind of chord, how it's a C minor chord. Pretty simple, but it has this this ambience to it that is sort of like a, almost like a burning match. It has like a sizzle, you know, and you can picture the desert, the cracking sand, all this kind of stuff. And um, once Warren's violin comes in, it's it's real rustic and it's it's fantastic.
Yeah, and I mean, I think the other thing is thinking about this film, I mean, it is a Western in some respects. Um, you know, I've heard it described as, uh, I guess, if, uh, if the Italian Westerns are spaghetti Westerns, as some people call them, of course, then th I've heard people describe this as a meat pie Western. <laughs> uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but you know, like it, it, it. So by definition, because it's about the Australian outback, it has a different sound, I think. But nonetheless, uh, placing it in the history of the Western. I mean, traditionally, the classical Western has this kind of Aaron Copland-esque, huge orchestral, bold melodies, big, strong themes, and this kind of Americana, like you can imagine the rhythm of riding a horse down Main Street to. Or you know, then the the revisionist stuff comes in with. Whatever it is, yeah. Thank you. Yes, absolutely. Uh, and uh, you know, the, you know, it's kind of almost nonsensical to describe the proposition as a revisionist western because that's a genre that's been around, or a subdivision of the western that's been around since like the nineteen fifties, right? And so, you know, but I think there is this history as well within the genre of pop musicians being brought in, like Bob Dylan to do um, uh, what was it, uh, Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid, or Ry Cooder did a couple of westerns, um, like The Long Riders actually, um, or even uh, Dead Man, uh, the Jim Jarmusch uh, movie with Neil Young's incredible, like kind of grindy guitar. I mean, that's the closest that you kind of get, I think, before yeah. Nick Cave and Warren Ellis, but it's not the closest you get after. The proposition. I think this score has been hugely influential for the sound of the West. Mm. And you know, we I've talked about the, there's this drone and Warren's violin, and I said it before. You know, it really is building on their strengths as musicians. So the next part that joins this track later is Nick's both his spoke or his his sung voice and some piano, and it's just those really four elements. It's the drone, it's a bit of the violin the singing and the piano, that you can feel that really close, intimate, humanistic quality. And it's just, there's something really soulful about it. Just thinking, Nick, when listening to this, that when we talk about sort of instruments or music painting a picture, I mean, I, I see some of you closing your eyes as well listening to this, and I mean, I actually hear the Australian outback. I hear those those sort of crickets, you know, and that sort of that noise yep. in in that instrumentation. There, it's sort of achieving this idea of just insects, and I mean, I even mean, flies. You know, in the film, there's there's so many close-up shots of people's backs with just covered in flies. Yeah. So yeah. It's, yeah, and yeah. often, like the sound effects, often just have a buzzing of flies with no score. Mm -hmm. So I think you've hit the nail on the head. It really is that. That, that fizz. Yeah, I mean, you can you can totally hear the, the nature elements in it. And yep. I, I don't know if that's intentional or not, but it certainly helps make this super successful. Yep. You know, it just feels like it's part of the land yep. um, of which it's, it's shot. And I think, look, the other successful thing about this drone that comes through is that it's really, it comes near the start of the film where basically the police chief gives this proposition to Guy Pearce's character, Charlie Burns, saying, I want you to go, if you want your little brother to live, you're going to go and find your older brother and kill him for me. And that's the trade-off. So it's, it's this kind of sense of fate knowing that this brother who's stuck in the middle needs to do this in order to achieve this. And he's sort of torn. And that fizz, that burning sound, 
anytime it comes up in the film and sometimes it's just the drone that you're reminded sonically that that's, that's the whole sort of reason of this movie and its plotline existing. And it actually reminded me of a, a more recent film which is Christopher Nolan's Batman series and specifically the second film, The Dark Knight, which faces uh, Heath Ledger's Joker. And in a similar way, Hans Zimmer basically wrote one single note which sounds like a burning violin and you'll hear it. And it's very kind of similar in the way that sort of sonic tone evokes a sense of dread. slowly evolves and meanders. Yeah, and definitely, I mean, uh, the, the sort of popularity of Nick Cave and Warren Ellis's music coincides with this shift, I think, in Hollywood, but in all sorts of genres of movie making towards sounds that are much more about texture and mm. rhythm rather than melody necessarily. So, you know, perfectly ties in with that too. Yeah. yeah. And look, they've done a really good job also at making this film feel like it's a bit of a, an old ballad or an old mm. saga or tale that could have existed, you know, that Banjo Patterson could have written. Who, who knows? Maybe with less I violence. I don't think he got that dark. <laughs> no, yeah, no. Um, no he didn't. Um, so we get these elements of poetry and uh, Nick Cave has basically written this little kind of almost like little poetic melody or poem for the writer and it plays under a slightly different burning kind of string texture but it's, um, it's quite evocative. It's called The Rider. When said the moon to the stars in the sky Soon said the wind that followed the moon Earth at the cloud that started to cry me said the writer's dry as a bone. And often that, that sort of textured um, sound of his voice, almost whispered, um, often just plays in the film like nothing, as if, you know, there is a bit of a... It's almost like the, the birds watching you. Know, when said the crow? Mm. And it's, it's giving, I guess, personalities to the landscape, to the trees, to the animals, anything that exists in this sort of vast wasteland. Mm. What does what um, the police chief call the... What's his line? Um, oh, about Australia. Yeah. What fresh hell is this? Yeah, what yeah. fresh hell is this? So yeah. it's not made to be a, a sort of pleasant place. No. But even the way that's recorded, I mean, we're on mics now. Mm. I mean, if you go in really, really close and you start hearing all of the... Sh psh 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 yeah. those, it, sonically, even if it's back in the mix, even if you're just watching a film in a theatre, it feels like someone is really close mm -hmm. to you, even if it's soft... Um, so like, uh, ASMR Nick Cave style. Yeah, 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 yeah. absolutely. Yeah. yeah, there's an intimate. I mean, look at that shot. It's very wide. Very. I mean, there's nothing except mm. that lone lone figure. Yet it feels quite intimate mm. and vast at the same time. Yeah. Mm. I mean, it's it, there's a loneliness. I think that's the vast part. Is that it just feels very very lonely. Yeah. And just with a couple of instruments, a couple of single lines, um, that rustic sort of nature, it does feel like, yeah, there's just a deep loneliness happening yep. through all of it. Hmm. But there's also a bit of rock and roll and it's sort of done in quite a grungy way with sort of distorted, almost yeah, quite, quite dissonant electric guitars and stuff and the poetry still kind of permeating in between. Um, so check this out. <laughs> Stars to burn. 
So, Nick, are we talking about distorted violin? Is that what's going on there? I think so, yeah. yeah. It's really kind of grungy, yeah. grungy stuff. It's cool. <laughs> it's cool. Yeah. And there's almost like these harmonics over, over being... Mm. Yeah, and it's it's just, quite, there's an aggression there. And it's in the film, it's used in a quite a aggressive way. And so, even more intimate. Yeah. <laughs> like totally whispered over the loudest cue. Yeah, true. Which is sort of really interesting, that juxtaposition, juxtaposition again um, mm. within that score. Surprisingly mm. similar as well to when I started to learn violin, that sort of sound. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's great. <laughs> Daniel, shut that noise <laughs> up. <laughs> um, yeah. I'll look at the cue called Martha's Dream, which, again, has a bit of a tortured element to it. Uh, more of Warren's, Warren's playing. Um, we'll listen to it and then I'll make a, make a few comments. So the first thing you notice is just how kind of plodding and relentless it is. And it really, it's almost like a, a tolling bell. There's something kind of impending in its relentless dong, two, dong, two, three, dong, two, three. Um, and I think for Martha, who's the, the wife of the police chief, it's his sense of dread coming, um, you know, there's the history of her friends that were raped and killed and pillaged by Arthur Burns. There's the fact that he might come back and do the same thing to, to them. So she's living with this fear and it's, I think it's quite conveyed pretty nicely there. And you can yeah. hear those um, almost kind of like shivering uh, effects, which are kind of Warren. Like really fast tapping. Yeah. Really fast yeah. tapping. He's basically what's called collegno. So he gets his bow and he uses the wood and kind of scrapes it across and it's being filtered and distorted and looped. And it's, yeah, it's really kind of unsettling effect yeah. in there. Yeah. <laughs> and interestingly, I mean, Nick was just counting it out while he, um, while he sung through that dong. It's, it's in three beats in the bar, which is um, like a waltz um, for, for people. Yeah. <laughs> Watch out, Martha. Yeah. <laughs> um, now, um, which is sort of interesting because they don't have um, an awful lot of their music in anything other than just four beats in the bar, like a standard rock mm. sort of idea. But this one's in three. And, and I sort of wondered whether that gives it, in a weird way, uh, like there's a little bit of a lightness, there's a little bit of a twirling, there's a little bit of a, you know, those sorts it's of Martha's elements. dress. It's Martha's, <laughs> maybe. Um, but yeah, I just thought it's interesting that they decide for this particular cue they just do in three yeah. um, which I think it makes it move forward things that are in three in inevitably feel like they want to move forward there's movement in it which is why they work so well as dancers as waltzes mm. um, and whereas four can feel a little bit more grounded and, and march like mm. so yeah I just thought that's no, interesting absolutely. And, and waltzes can be kind of foreboding in the sense that they can often sound a little bit like a top is being spun too fast you know the thing the momentum is moving out of control I mean mm. even Hitchcock in uh, Shadow of a Doubt used the Merry Widow waltz in mm. like in the most spectacularly terrifying sort of way and mm. so they can be kind of foreboding although they can also be quite funny <laughs> yeah. uh, well the second part of this cue has a kind of spinning out of control sense of these sort of cascading violins and it um, yeah it sort of builds to this whirling sense of, of menace which again is just reflected in how Martha is feeling 
One, two, three. One, two, three. So it's quite a slow kind of three. Builds to here. those violins whirling on top of one another they're almost you know they're a bit out of tune all the strings are vibrating against each other it's sort of like cascading nightmares whirling through her mind and it's it's very very effective I actually liken it to the the violin equivalent of you know like a an upright piano that's in an old saloon bar and it's slightly <laughs> out of tune and all of that that sort of western honky tonk it's almost like the strings version of that. So nothing's, mm. you know, no one's got time to tune their violins. They're going <laughs> to yeah. get shot soon. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's sort of, it's really cool. And, and importantly, the all the violins are really low in their range. Yeah. Really low. Like at, it's not really a thing where Warren actually gets up into what I would say a more traditional, more classical MSO esque um, violin range, where the you know the first violins are soaring up above. That's what you know most m movie music is. Mm. Um, so it's almost in the viola range, and therefore puts it into a human range. You know, so the 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 range where humans sort of sing. Um, tends to be in that sort of viola, upper cello um, sort of range. And so by him playing there, now it feels really human, um, mm. yeah, which is sort of really interesting. And look, uh, we want to finish talking about the proposition with what we call the writer's song. And it's interesting because, you know, I talked before about them really trying to make this sort of sense of a, a ballad or an old tale told from many years ago. Um, I think they've cemented it here by having an end credit song that uses those lyrics that were whispered or sort of chanted throughout the film in a more menacing way and doing a sort of a lighter... I mean, it's, it's the pop song of this film, for want of a better <laughs> word, um, but it really... It could have been something that, you know, they found under a rock, you know, 100 years ago. Who, who knows? <laughs> It's a really nice sort of um, bookend to, to the film. Mm. I mean, this, this music, um, just all of this playing, like if I, I am no expert on the music from the actual era in which this stuff is set. Um, but it feels like if you were to imagine, well, what, what would have it sound like if a whole bunch of, you know, Western um, minstrels were travelling around, you know, with a, a beat-up violin and a, an acoustic guitar and, you know, just a an little An old chunky piano. Yeah. And, a, yeah. 
like, the top of I a I sort bin. of feel like this is exactly how it would sound, even though it almost certainly wouldn't have sounded like that. <laughs> yeah, but, you yeah. know, it's still closer than, like, traditional Western. Oh, yeah, totally. I totally. mean, if we're talking about, you know, the, the, the kind of sound that you played before, I mean, that, like, maybe generously dates to Aaron Copeland's era, which is really, like, late 30s, mm. 1940s. <laughs> so it's, you know, not at all period accurate. So, I mean, I'm willing to pay that their music is actually much closer to the kind of actual music that might have been played yeah. at the time. Yeah. Uh, now let's move on, Nick, because I'm, I'm, you'll, yeah. you'll discover in our podcast <laughs> um, that we do like to waffle and um, some of the episodes are, are long, so they're sort of to be enjoyed over many sittings. Um, but in this particular talk, Nick, we've got an audience, I don't know if you realise, and um, uh, we, let, let's move on. So, sure. Well, from, um, look, I guess one Western to another. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, maybe, Dan, you want to quickly talk about th- this film? Um, yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, it's uh, another, I mean, even though it's not Australian in the same way as the proposition is, it's an Australian director, it's uh, Andrew Dominic. Uh, and uh, yeah, uh, it, actually, they both even come from the same film school. Uh, like, I, sh- I shouldn't get this plug Give in. Give the plug, I Dan. come from Swinburne, they're both Swinburne graduates. So, you know. <laughs> anyway, uh, <laughs> but yeah, look, I think, you know, this is again, uh, when people, again, throw around that term revisionist Western, what they really mean is a Western, I think, that, demythologizes and this demythologizes you know as much as any it's all about undoing the kind of larger than life hero um iconography that often surrounds i mean you know the foundational stories of 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 i guess to some degree colonization so you know i think there's there's some really interesting things going on with this movie and apart from anything it is Beautiful, like every you know, you can't choose a bad frame from this film. (laughs) And look, musically, it's interesting because they both they're both really about um, this sort of outlaw character that either the authorities are after or a close companion is out to either assassinate or kind of you know double cross Arthur Burns in the proposition and Jesse James in this film. Yet the cultures, you know, are quite different. Australian outback at, at that time is really you know, the frontier, nothing much is out there. Whereas I feel like in the West, you know, in the American West, there's a bit more history. And so I find that the music that I've written for this film isn't quite as rustic. It slightly fits into more sort of a classical box, for want of a better word. So it's a bit more harmonic. And by that, I mean, the, the, it's not just sort of drone in a sort of rustic violin. There are a few more kind of chords, um, even some nice melodies that, that come out of the texture. Mm-hmm. Um, but really, the underlying theme for this film is what they've called Song for Jesse. And it's interesting because uh, it only has like two instruments. It has a celeste. And for those who don't know what a celeste is, this is a piano. And the celeste is this one. Uh, ma- made it. very famous yeah. by the Harry Potter films. But um, it's a really interesting instrument to use as the key figure for Jesse James. And what it ends up doing is making him almost, again, this myth-making, it's like he's a, almost like a dream character. He's sort of untouchable. You know, he's not quite there. And it's the Celeste has this magical element, like he's a hologram. And it's often used under narration through the film, which is another key difference of this film. Um, and it's very, very effective. So have a listen uh, to this song for Jesse. <laughs> Thank you. 
so Nick, I don't know if you can confirm this through your chats with everybody involved, but I read an interview where I think Warren was saying that initially Andrew Dominic, the director, wasn't super happy with the music that they were putting together and actually suggested the use of Celeste for this. Do you know if that's... I haven't heard that. Okay. But maybe well, they wouldn't be the first to admit that yeah. they stuffed up. No, well, I don't, I don't <laughs> think it was quite that. I think it was more just like Andrew Dominic wanted... Something different. Something, yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. look, I mean, it's a really unusual choice yeah. because, I mean, this character is robbing trains, murdering people, mm. and yet it's a really... It's very kind of childlike and innocent, you know. Kind of element there. And it's, um, yeah, I think maybe a, a conscious decision to try and frame the character as this sort of dreamlike, yeah, mytholo myth mythological god in mm. some ways. Yeah, I mean, you think about other uses of, uh, famous uses of Celeste in the, in the classical world with the nutcracker, you know, when mm. the, um, uh, the toys come to life. Like, it's always used in uh, uh, sort of like mythical, magical ways. I mean, the Harry Potter magic mm. again. Um, or it's used in um, horror films yeah. to be super creepy. Creepy kids, yeah, usually. Creepy kids. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But it's, it's often that juxtaposition, juxtaposition Again, I've, I'm mm. going to use that word and mm. mispronounce it all night. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it's that idea of just sort of lumping that very childlike thing with yeah. quite a brutal thing, I think, yeah. also makes potentially a scarier character as well. Um, mm. Because, you know, I think a really evil theme or an aggressive theme on an aggressive person, okay, that's cool um, and used a lot. But the idea of a childlike theme yeah. on an aggressive character makes them even more unpredictable. It, it does, yeah, it doesn't really yeah. tell you what he's going to do, what his yeah. motivations are. It's mm. just, yeah, it's, it's two chords and it's, mm. it's the delicateness of it kind of matches, yeah, how you feel about the character. And especially mm. Bob, uh, Robert Ford, the, the Casey Affleck character, is, you know, throughout the film really idolises Brad Pitt's character and almost becomes a bit infatuated with him. And, again, that relationship, you never quite know where it's sitting, how Jesse feels about him. He's like this enigma, and I think the music is very good at... at Keeping that distance. It's distant yeah. kind of music. Absolutely. Let's move on, Nick. Yeah, look, there's another track called uh, A Rather Lovely Thing. Now, I should point out that most of the score for Jesse James was written based off a script. I think they only had three minutes of footage. So a lot of these cues are not specifically written for scenes, um, but they all convey a sense of, of narrative kind of drive. And, you know... The title of, or the plotline of the film is given away in the title, it's the assassination. <laughs> so twist. this is a track that has a bit of grit and kind of movement to it, often used under trains, but often really f conveys the inevitability of, of Jesse's impending death. And it's sort of, it's cues like this that actually have a bit more foreshadowing um, of, of the plot than that's really simple Jesse's 
theme on this list. And I think it's because there's there's more harmonic motion. Mm. Yeah. That sort of... You know, there's a few harmonic chord changes and it has, it has more of a drive and yeah. a direction to the music. Yeah, it does. It actually feels like it's sort of really pushing forward, you know, pushing the plot forward, pushing, yeah. pushing mm. forward in general. So. And even just to return to our earlier conversation about the kind of texture and the sound of their music. I mean, the piano, it's not like it's an orchestral grand piano that's crisp and, and wonderful and, and shiny. It's very sort of rough sounding. Yeah. Yeah. It's got to be an upright, definitely. Yeah, I think, I think yeah. yeah. Um, look, another track I want to play is called Falling. And this is interesting because, again, it uses these sort of cascading violins. Um, and this is used in a great scene where Dick Little is being sort of surrounded by the... the I guess they're not the police. What are they back in those days? The marshal rangers, and uh, the, sheriff, the, the rangers and all rangers, those guys. Yeah. Um, his house, they're kind of encroaching on him to, to arrest him. And the music just has these really simple four chords. And they just repeat over and over and again. And all of a sudden these, these falling sinking kind of violins coming. And it's almost like you can feel them, them contracting, in, contracting yeah. and encroaching yeah. on it. It's, it's interesting. Sort of hypnotic a bit in its sort of its repetition, but it's it's yeah, an interesting use. And that that bass note, that sort of boom, boom it comes in just a little later than you're expecting. It's like <laughs> yeah. uh, it's sort of yeah. always well, falling. It's always mm. falling forward the whole time, yeah. helping that momentum and that uneasiness happen. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> now, I think one of the most interesting uses of music in this film is when we get to the the the, the title shot, <laughs> the money shot um, <laughs> of basically the sexual assassination of Jesse James. And it's not something horrific. It's actually probably the most delicate, light, uh, gentle little... And again, it's in three. It's a little mm. waltz mm. kind of element. Um, and it's called What Must Be Done. But have a listen and try and picture a man being assassinated to this music. <laughs>
So I sort of have a couple of theories about why they chose this bit of music for, for that scene. I think one is it's really playing on the, the sort of sense of, of guilt. There's a sort of a sadness to it and it's mm. almost that sense of sadness inside Robert Ford mm. and his brother who is sort of backup assassin on the side. But also it's sort of playing the inevitability from Jesse James's side. It's almost like putting a baby to sleep. It's a little lullaby. You know, so it's, it's, a, it's almost like a gentle kind of rocking to sleep. And maybe from Jesse James, he looks in the mirror, he sees them, you know, Bob putting the gun out. He doesn't flinch and try and respond. He just sort of closes his eyes and puts his head down. Mm. Okay, yep, yeah, my, my time is up. Mm. And maybe it was always coming and it, it, the gentleness of it is an interesting juxtaposition. To and, and also the way the film plays out, it kind of makes sense musically more as like something that you would traditionally have to underscore the end of a friendship or even the end of a relationship, right? Mm. That's, that's what it sounds like, yeah. um, which is kind of how it plays out in the film, really. Mm. Yeah. Mm. It's sort of that, yeah. Mm. It is, yeah. And look, the final thing I want to play from this film is what we call Song for Bob. So Jesse gets his theme that runs through the film. Um, but don't forget, Robert gets assassinated at the very end for his own assassination of Jesse James. <laughs> and this is one of these cues that it's such a beautiful melody uh, and it just plays out. And again, it plays a sort of this sense of innocence and but inevitability at the same time. And it starts with these nice brooding string chords and a very simple piano melody. This is where you really see their their songwriting background come out because it's often yeah just built on four chords. And they just cycle and the cue goes for about 5 minutes and it just builds and builds and has layers um, and it's yeah it's again very kind of lulling you in and hypnotic in that way. Can I say something terrible? Um, <laughs> Danny Warhol's You Were the Last High same chord progression and I can't unhear it every time I hear this cue <laughs> oh really so yeah go check it out and you too will have this beautiful piece of music ruined anyway yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no look it is beautiful and look you know the strings come in it's a really nice sort of fitting finale to the film get high violins. Finally. Yeah. Finally some high violins. True. I mean, the way I always think about violins and, and film music is that we still have that, that main melody um, doubled both with the high piano, which helps, 
Um, but then that violin still in its sort of middle register in, in you know, down low, essentially, again. But you have this sort of little orchestra behind with really high soaring strings. And I always think of those strings as being more like aspirational. It's like more feelings are, are coming up over the top. The human voice, that, that sort of made melody is still there. It's still hu human. Um, but the emotion is coming up through the through the high strings, which is far more normal, I guess, in in film music. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and you can see how that's different, sort of um, aesthetic to the proposition, yeah. which doesn't have that emotional pull in the same way. It yeah, has yeah. it in a, in a different, grittier kind of way. So going from the proposition uh, to the assassination of Jesse James, I mean, we should probably move on to our third one, and finally we get to something a bit light. So, you know, sort of a maybe a, even a little bit of a romantic comedy. Oh no, it's the road. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yep. Yeah. <laughs> See, I I um, had to watch the road in the lead up to um, uh, helping to put the show together for for the MSO, and we warned um, you, Andrew. Yeah, <laughs> and and everyone's like, no, the road. It's so depressing. Uh, has everyone seen the road? Most people seen the road. No, I thought. It, I mean, yes, of course. There's some horrendous stuff, but I was I was sitting there waiting to waiting to see a film where nothing good happens. Like they eat a can of fruit. <laughs> <laughs> like there's good things that happen yeah, in the yeah. film. We they find the bunker with all the stored food. Yeah, yes. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I I actually had a lot of fun with. It. I love post-apocalyptic <laughs> films. So yeah, yeah. But, yeah. I mean, they've worked with John Hillcote subsequent to this as well uh, with Lawless in 2013. So they obviously really have a fantastic relationship. Obviously, uh, the director of the proposition too. Well. So returning again. Mm. So musically, um, slightly different can of worms. Um, is that the expression? I don't no, know. Sure. Don't use it. <laughs> That's um, what you'll eat. There's when you get a, the a lot more <laughs> dissonance and um, aggression in this film, and it's because of the subject matter. It's really, it's really dark in, in places. Um, a cue I want to start with is called the Cannibals, and basically, you know, it's this apocalyptic, um, deserted sort of land they're living on, and these cannibals are approaching Viggo Mortensen and his son um, Cody Smith McPhee, the Australian mm. actor, plays plays mm. the young son very, very brilliantly. Um, but what you get is this really kind of dissonant droning and then all these scratchy violin and string effects I'm doing a bad impression <laughs> yeah. of it but when you hear it it's really um, it's quite confronting and it's menacing and it's scary and then these pounding drums come in and it sounds like it, they're not played perfectly in time it sounds like just cannibals hitting logs it's really kind of frightening in its in its lack of rhythm <laughs> Drone is, I mean, it sounds like a hurdy-gurdy or something, you know? They're like, that's a, I don't even know how it works. You wind it up and it sort of just drones and yeah. creates that really harsh grating sort of sound, yeah. Yeah, it's quite frightening. And, I mean, we were speaking about this other day, how it almost sounds like these cannibals are like in the zombie films where they kind of moan, <laughs> uh, you know. And also that, 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 
that sort of you hear those strings sort of rising. It sounds like sirens as well, like yeah. as if a you know a warning siren is is starting. Um, you know those those drums being played out of time. Always, there's two types of drums in my opinion. <laughs> there's the the organised drums, which always sounds militaristic, and then there's the little bit all over the place drums, which often signifies in film music like a um, what's the right word for it? It's it's a uh, like cavemen, like... Um, right. Uh, primitive? Yeah, primitive. Yeah, That's yeah. the word I was after, primitive. Um, so, Lack, yeah. Lacking intellect. Yeah. <laughs> yeah but it's, it's, it's sort of that lack of organisation as well, that formal organisation, um, mm. much more base in terms of a response. So, mm. But I also feel those drums feel like a heartbeat as well. Like yeah. it's, it's the sort of heartbeat that would happen when you're terrified. It's not yeah. just a boom. Yeah, it's quite arrhythmic. Yeah, it's like, you know, I'm going to have a heart attack here. So, um, and that's sort of what the scene is because they're hiding from those those these cannibals coming down the road. Yeah. So it really mimics, um, you know, the, that the action aspect. that's coming on. Yeah. Yeah. There's there's a bit of a backstory in this film where we get flashbacks, those of you who haven't seen it, um, back to character played by Charlize Theron where she is this mother character and she actually abandons them basically to, well, to off herself, really. Mm. Um, she can't stand the apocalypse and all the dread and doom coming towards them. So Viggo Mortensen's character really has to play two roles, the father and the mother figure. And this piece of music is called The Mother, but it really plays in a scene where he's really embracing his son and it's a, it's a touching moment. Um, it is emotional, but it's, it's quite low in the strings. Like I'm talking double basses and cellos have the melody and it's really dark, brooding chords, but they're... They're warm in that sort of emotional, sort of harmonic way, but they're, they're very low. It's, it's a unique sound. It's almost like a bit of a hymn. Yeah. You know, yeah. Uh, there's like a there's a religious kind of connotation that I get a bit. Maybe it's just those those strong mm. major chords that are played, um, but it's it's a ray of hope. Even though I think they've 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 hidden it by making it so dark on the instruments, but it's. But mm. don't you also think there's a there's a literal translation as well as you've got the really low for the father. I know it's called the mother, but he's <laughs> like you said playing both roles in this instance, um, and then you have the boy's voice ultimately coming in very hesitantly over the top. So mm. it's low strings and then it's interrupted suddenly by a, a violin. Yep. Just going... And then it, the low takes over again. And then the, the violin's allowed to sing that little bit more. Yeah. And I feel like there's an absolute, absolute literal translation of the father is giving safety. It's going to be all right, son. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, Dad. <laughs> <laughs> exactly <Yeah>. like that. <laughs> That's the road, the musical. It was born. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, let's move on, Nick. Um, <laughs> if we can continue to take yes. this film seriously. Yeah. Now, um, yeah, the road is obviously the name of the film, and um, there's a track called the the road and the far road, which has a nice kind of. There's a sort of a sense of optimism and journeying through this sort of lilting piano um, that, that is played by Nick Cave. Um, but again, some strings come in and it really gives you a sense of, 
of their journey over the long stretch of the film. What I was wanted to say about this, Nick, is that I, I think it's perfect road music. There's a, there's a whole bunch of elements here that are going on. It's going between a major chord, so maybe there's some hope down the road. It's going back to a minor chord. See major, major chord. Then a minor chord. So maybe there's some bad things that will happen <laughs> down the road. I know this is very basic, right? But I think this is how it sort of makes it feel. Um, also, we're in little groups of three, so we were talking about that three again, that idea of the waltz, that idea of movement. And this has its own version of movement. You know, it's, it's never-ending. It's spiraling around and around. It doesn't feel like it will ever end. The road doesn't feel like it will ever end. You know, it feels like it goes on forever. Mm. Um, so, and then you have like a, this sort of, sort of hopeful melody, sort of, but doesn't get too hopeful because we know it's probably going to be bad, mm. but we do also have to sort of trudge on. And I, I, I think just those basic elements, even though I've sort of simplified things, um, I really do think that's why this works. It's why it feels like it's the perfect sort of music for, for this sort of film. Yeah, it doesn't get too emotional and give mm. you too much, too much hope. Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> well, there is a bit of hope at the end. Um, there is a bit of death metal kind of stuff yeah. that creeps into this score, which <laughs> is interesting. This is a cue called The House, where they discover these... God, what are those bodies in the basement? They're, they're alive, but they're it's super like malnourished. like a live meat locker. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's terrible. It's a pretty frightening scene. They're kind of, help us. Um, mm. Yeah, really, they're all starving and it's, it's quite grotesque. Mm. Um, but they're stuck in this house and the owners come home. And anytime they see other people in the film, they're worried they're going to be, it'll be their end. Um, so we get more kind of dissonance, but it's really, uh, it's, it's quite an intense um, dissonance and wait till you hear the sort of the almost like machine like chaos that 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 comes in So many people started bopping their heads then. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I mean, I, I think for that reason, the same reason why that, that invoked that, that 
Yeah, sort of. <laughs> I think this is, once again, why this works, is that when you have all of this sort of out-of-time stuff, it feels more chaotic. This yeah. is a moment when they're essentially escaping the house. Yeah. Um, adrenaline's when, going through the yeah, roof. Yeah, adrenaline's through the roof. But he knows precisely there is only one thing they have to do, and that's get out of there. There's mm -hmm. no hesitation, there's no chaos, there's no whatever. There's chaos, sort of, but I have to get to the window, I have to get out. So this is far more of that, well, I mean, we said militaristic, yeah. but it's, yeah, yeah there mm -hmm. is a direction to this. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. I don't know if you heard, there's, there's, there's samples of Warren going, yeah. <laughs> in there, and it's, yeah, it's almost like they're panting or their hearts beating, and it's, it's in the score. It's really, really interesting. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, that's another element of a lot of these scores is that they're, in, in the smallest way, really, it's not overt, um, mixing sound design into the score. Yeah. Um, so it just helps to elevate what sound design there already is. Yeah. Um, yeah. In I mean, that's something I movie. definitely couldn't demonstrate on the piano. Like, mm. nothing in that cue. It's not, I'm not even going to touch this. Yeah. <laughs> no musical version of the, of the house. Yeah. yeah, but I mean, it's totally right as well because at the same time, I mean, I mentioned before this kind of trend towards uh, texture and rhythm in film music and definitely there is, you know, a lot of people talking about this trend towards composers being kind of sound designers and you see that with them but I mean they're not really coming at it from the same perspective as a Hans no. Zimmer is for example. It's more adding to it rather than starting yeah. out sound design as the base whereas Absolutely. this is we have a musical base mm. we add sound design elements in. Yeah so. yeah for sure but I mean you know if you could, you could compare that cue to any cue from Dunkirk for example mm. which I think achieves a similar outcome from a very different creative perspective. So yeah, really interesting to think about in context like that. Now we can't leave you in that, uh, in that state. So we're gonna play one final cue from uh, The Road, which of course is the ray of hope at the very end when um, the little boy, well, we won't, I won't spoil it, but it's not all bad. Uh, and this is, yeah, again, a, a softly gentle approach, but it's not overstated. It's just, um, yeah, it's, it's Nick on piano, light strings and just giving that glimmer of hope. So unlike the rest of the yeah. film, isn't it? Isn't but it? all the same elements are there. It's mm. just yeah. a, a shift in, yes, more major major sounding um, chords. Uh, but everything, once again, is higher up in its register again. We're out of the drone notes and the low violin playing. We're into a little more traditional stuff. Mm. I mean, this, this could... It's a really effective um, cue, by the way, for this scene, but um, this cue could actually turn up in a lot of films. Yeah. I don't feel like it's, yeah. you know... Uh, it's just this film's only thing, whereas all of these other pieces feel like they could only really exist in a in a film like this. <laughs> yeah. So, are, yeah. they, are they woodwinds? Am I? Yeah, there's a little. Yeah, there's a, uh, woodwinds are not common features of their scores, but no. there's a bit of flute in the road that, that Warren plays. Hmm. But I mean, I guess that begs the question: what what is the the iconic elements of Nick Cave and Warren Ellis's film music? I mean, yeah. what do you think it is? Andy? Yeah, well, I mean, we were talking about that DNA at the start, just to sort of finish off this. This talk here. I mean, it's it's obvious that if you were to take the biggest step back and say, what is it? I mean, for me, it's Warren Ellis's violin. I mean, that singular sound 
is as soon as I hear that, I think their music straight away. And it's used so often in so many other... Yeah. Um, we, we're talking about video games with Red mm. Dead Redemption. Oh, absolutely. Um, sort of really influential. lifting yeah. in a big way um, <laughs> these sorts of scores. But that would be element number one, yeah. I think. The drone note yep. is often a feature. Uh, what else would you say, Nick, after that? Well, yeah, first of all, yeah, I agree because, I mean, piano is such a big feature of so many film scores. I mean, it's yeah. such a common instrument. Um, but the solo violin... Um, yeah, it makes his appearances, but but not in this low. We talk about the word slack. It almost sounds yeah. like his strings are kind of a bit loose. It needs to kind of you know it needs to go to the shop for a service kind yeah. of thing. Um, but that's that's the beauty of it, and mm. it's that really rustic yeah. um, kind of sound. I think. Look, I think it's the the chord progressions, the the song like structure of a lot of their music, which is often mm. yeah four chords. Um, but not used in a pop way, just mm. added into this bed of drones and violin um, really is a, a feature of their music. It, it's pop mm. DNA without being yeah. pop songs. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. It's not, it, like, they're never quite going to go for your, like, uh, like one, five, six, four, like, yeah. you know, let it be. Yeah, like, that's not what's well, going to happen. Again. But, yeah. yep. <laughs> but there, like, will be a version of that. In a, in a different framework and obviously with probably a few more minor chords. Uh, but, you know, it, it's very much, I think, coming from that perspective. And at the same time, I mean, I, I think, you know, they are exemplars of like, you know, you can look at other composers like Johnny Greenwood coming from Radiohead or Mika Levy, you know, with a, a fantastic um, non-orchestral music background and uh, even like uh, Jed Kurzel and uh, like an Australian composer, Jed Kurzel, uh, you know, coming through and I think bringing these different approaches that's been a real feature of the last decade in film music and, and really they've been among the leaders of that, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Now, unfortunately, that brings us to the end of this talk. We really could bang on and on about this music. Um, we actually struggled <laughs> to keep this yeah. into an hour. Hey, we're only three minutes over. It. Yeah, I know. Amazing. <laughs> now, if this is the sort of thing that you like, you know, really getting under the hood of, uh, of uh, film music and sort of having a bunch of fun um, with it, like I said, we do have a podcast. Uh, you can access it online at artofthescore.com.au. It's on Apple Podcasts, all the usual places. Um, are we on Spotify yet? No. Getting there <laughs> slowly. Yeah. Stitcher. Yes. Yes. See you on Stitcher. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, go check out the the, uh, the podcast. I mean, we, we've got all sorts of stuff. We even have the Johnny Greenwood one. We've got yeah, There Will we Be got Blood. Will be blood yeah. We've got a whole bunch of sort of more mainstream stuff. We've got Star Wars and Indiana Jones and all sorts of things. Um, so with that, could you please help me thank Dr. Dan Golding. Thank you very much. <laughs> and, of course, Mr. Nicholas Buck. Thanks, guys. And Andrew Pox and everybody. Thank you. And I don't know how many of you able to get tickets within the half-hour window um, <laughs> that, that they managed to be on sale before they sold out, but um, uh, if you are heading along to the MSO's uh, live concert this week, it's going to be truly phenomenal. Like I said, I've been involved in the, in the creation of this with, with Nick, and it's going to be one of the highlights, not only of this year for me, I think it's going to be like a bit of a career highlight. It's just sort of pretty cool. So I hope you have a great time. Um, if you didn't manage to get tickets, the MSO actually have piles of movie scores that we do. Um, coming up, we've got Harry Potter, we've got Star Wars, uh, Little Mermaid, just for something a little different. Actually, Little Mermaid score by Nick and Moran would be amazing. Oh. <laughs> Oh, yeah. I want it. I mean, they're doing, they're, Disney's uh, doing it, a live it, it, action It'll sound remake, like so. this. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, Do we, no, I think we have to... 
Ariel, <laughs> princess of the sea. That I think could we be the live action Disney royalties yeah. for that. So thanks. Live action yeah. remake. Yeah. Um, <laughs> lots of bad jokes like that are in the podcast too. So my apologies. Um, More. So thank you very much for for coming out tonight. We really appreciate it. Yeah. Um, go and see as much myth. Uh, movies and talks that you can because Myth have been a wonderful partner um, to us. We were here last year and, and we love everything they do and MSOs um, loved working with Myth as well so go and check out as much as you possibly can. Uh, so thank you very much and have a great night. Thanks. Thanks.